Good evening. Welcome to the October 30 recess. No, welcome to the October 30, 2023 meeting of the Arlington County Planning Commission. My name is Devanshi Patel. I am the chair of the Planning Commission. Tonight, the commission will consider the following agenda items. Um, the Historical and Cultural Resources Plan for adoption. The um, Commercial Market Resiliency Initiative 2.0. That's an informational item. And the Performance Parking Pilot Project in Commercial Corridors. If you are here for the Langston Boulevard area plan item, it will be discussed at the recess meeting on Wednesday, November 1 at 7 p.m. We'd like to share a few logistical points for virtual participants and or commissioners participating remotely. The meetings will no longer be a live stream. A YouTube link will be provided 24 to 48 hours after the meeting has taken place on our web page. Also, the meeting will continue to be broadcasted with closed captioning on Comcast Xfinity channels 25 and 1085, Verizon Fios channels 39 and 40, 24 to 48 hours after the meeting has taken place. Please check the Planning Commission website for further information. <clears throat> Excuse me. Audio of tonight's meeting is also available via phone. If commissioners, presenters, or speakers lose internet connectivity during tonight's meeting, please reconnect with us by phone. For other presenters and speakers joining us through Microsoft Teams, please keep your phones and devices muted until you're called upon. Please turn off sound to any other devices around you to minimize interference. And please keep your cameras off until the clerk calls upon you to speak. When called upon to speak, please unmute yourself by clicking on the microphone icon that is located on your meeting command bar. The moderator does not have the ability to unmute you. Once you have spoken, please turn your cameras off. And if you're dialing in by phone, please press star six to unmute. Public speakers, you'll be called upon by the clerk at an assigned time. Pre-registration to speak at tonight's hearing was required, and we are no longer able to accommodate additional speakers. Speakers will have two minutes to com comment as an individual and three minutes to comment as a representative of an organization or county board appointed advisory group. A timer will be displayed on the screen when speaking virtually. Speakers in person will follow the timer on the podium. If you are dialing in by phone and unable to see the screen, we will provide an audible 30-second warning. You will be muted when your time has concluded. The meeting chat is the meeting chat is active for presenters or commissioners who need technical assistance only. Please do not use the meeting chat for discussion, public comment, questions about agenda items, or requests for more information. All public comment must be shared verbally for the record during the assigned public testimony period. Lastly, this is a public forum. Tonight's meeting will be recorded and posted to the county website via a link um, to YouTube as stated. All information associated with tonight's meeting, whether written or spoken, is subject to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act requirements. Madam Clerk, please call the first item. Excuse me, our first item for the evening is a historic and cultural resources plan known as HCRP. This is the adoption of an update to the historic and cultural resources plan, an element of the Arlington County's comprehensive plan. We have Cynthia Lachaise Torres and Lauren Ferris to present this item this evening. Thank you. Hello. Good evening. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. We are back. Um, we're very excited to bring the Historic and Cultural Resources Plan forward to the Planning Commission for your consideration for adoption. adoption. This is the first update to the original plan, which is an element of the county's comprehensive plan that the county board adopted back in 2006. 
The planning process has been ongoing since spring of 2020. This slide shows a quick overview of the project timeline to date, as, as well as some of the major milestones. An initial draft of the updated plan was released for public comment in April of this year, followed by the release of the recommended draft in mid-August. We have spent most of this year on a robust public engagement process. At its September public hearing, the Historical Affairs and Landmark Review Board voted unanimously to support the updated plan. The County Board will consider adoption of the updated plan uh, in November. One more note about process, a separate implementation framework is currently being finalized with county leadership. This slide highlights some of the major achievements that our program has accomplished since the original 2006 plan. Among these are dozens of historic markers, the development of the Historic Resources Inventory, or the HRI, and the protection of nearly two dozen historic properties via local designation and or preservation easements. Collectively, all these accomplishments helped us incorporate preservation more holistically into county planning efforts and helped us build strong internal partnerships. However, the field of historic preservation has evolved and shifted in the time since the original plan. Nationwide, the field has considered who it has served and how the practice of historic preservation can be more inclusive. As a result, our program broadened its reach beyond just historic buildings to recognize the human contributions and cultural diversity of our community. We also acknowledge the need to study how historic preservation is integrated and balanced with other county policies and priorities. An ongoing challenge has been a lack of sufficient programmatic resources, both in terms of funding to undertake major projects, as well as our team's uh, bandwidth to complete additional work items and new initiatives. The preservation staff also has been in a continual reactive state with only limited time available for proactive engagement and education. Reflecting back on all of this allowed us to determine areas for improvement, many of which are addressed by the goals and recommendations in the updated plan. So the updated historic and cultural resources plan lays a new foundation for building on the past successes of our program while embracing new priorities and opportunities. The plan connects historic buildings and places with the people, stories, and traditions that shape and define Arlington. We are especially proud of our approach to equity and accessibility throughout the plan, as well as the recommendations to explore new creative preservation planning tools that will offer more flexibility on how Arlington practices preservation. Fostering existing and new partnerships will help advance our education and outreach missions. The plan likewise aims to intentionally connect and balance historic preservation with other county priorities, including affordable housing, green space and tree preservation, energy efficiency initiatives, and racial equity work. Lastly, the updated plan identifies gaps in the preservation services currently provided by the county. Over the long term, as these needs in the areas of archaeology, cultural heritage work, and archival management are addressed, we will be better positioned to improve and and advance the impacts of historic preservation countywide. The plan's strong emphasis on fostering equity and inclusion will increase access to historic preservation services, especially to those who have not typically been served and to those whose stories have not yet been broadly told. The equity aspirations featured for each plan goal describe how these achievements would help advance inclusion, diversity, equity, and or accessibility within our program. 
The inclusive language in the plan enables all residents to see themselves in this document by putting people and their identities first and showing that everyone who lives in Arlington is part of its history. So here we have the five focus areas of the recommended draft, community engagement, incentives, partnerships, regulations, and technology information and tools. Community engagement has two fundamental goals, to increase the understanding of and the support for Arlington's history, along with its people and its places. We will strive to do this by celebrating diversity of both people and place, and by undertaking more proactive, regular outreach, such as through hosting quarterly events, creating an annual report to track our successes and losses, and expanding our program's digital newsletter. We also are eager to connect with residents and groups that typically have not participated in our activities and services before. For incentives, we want to provide more incentives to residents, property owners, and developers to encourage historic preservation. To help achieve this, we want to recognize those who are already preserving Arlington's heritage, like the owners of historic properties. We want to explore financial incentives, such as sustaining the new historic preservation fund, and establishing a local preservation tax credit and or tax abatement program. We also want to consider how to offer more preservation, excuse me, more flexible preservation zoning standards for historic buildings undergoing historic renovation or adaptive reuse. Being able to offer more flexible incentives will, will allow preservation work to become more equitable while still providing a balance with other county policies. Ongoing efforts to safeguard our history and cultural heritage will be strengthened by increased collaborations, both, both with other county departments and with our community partners. To succeed, we need to better define how preservation is integrated with other county planning efforts and processes. This will help make preservation more proactive and consistent. We likewise want to build on our relationships with priority county initiatives, especially those that complement historic preservation like affordable housing, sustainability and energy efficiency, and cultural landscapes like cemeteries and parks. Preservation regulations involve improving existing tools and processes and pursuing new tools. Much of the public feedback we received underscored a community desire for more flexibility in how Arlington preserves its history. The plan recommends assessing and improving the local designation process, plus considering new flexible historic preservation zoning tools. Such tools like neighborhood heritage districts or micro districts could offer flexibility in preserving important aspects of historic character like massing, scale, height, and setbacks. They also could help protect smaller collections of resources such as a block or a portion of a neighborhood or commercial area. The plan likewise encourages the preservation of resources at high risk of being lost and also underrepresented histories. A major recommendation in the plan is establishing an archeology span program for the county. This would include adopting an archeology span ordinance, creating an archeology span plan to guide county health collections and provide expertise, and developing a standard review process for archeological projects on county property. And lastly, the focus area for technology, information, and tools has two priorities one for the Historic Resources Inventory, or HRI, and another for General Preservation Information Systems. The HRI is now more than a decade old and has helped staff prioritize and advocate for the protection and or reuse of specific types of historic buildings. Yet, there's room for improvement. 
This includes making corrections to the data in the first phase of the HRI, creating clearer policy requirements for HRI ranked properties, improving how others access and use the HRI as a tool, and expanding the HRI into a second phase and studying new historic resource types. Another major part of the technology focus area involves improving and expanding the county's general preservation systems and conducting additional architectural and cultural surveys and studies. Simply, we need to manage our data better, plus make more information user-friendly and available for research purposes. To help achieve this, the plan recommends a more formalized approach to managing historic records countywide through an archival records management program. We likewise need to study ongoing risks to historic properties, like climate change and development pressures, and then incorporate that data into our information systems. Since our planning process began in 2020, public engagement has been vital to the decision-making process. We reached new audiences and collected internal and external feedback via a variety of virtual and in-person engagements. Overwhelmingly, the feedback received was positive. Several major themes emerged as shown here. Among the most popular responses were support for archeology, span history and technical assistance, as well as new preservation incentives and tools. So this past spring and summer, we analyzed feedback on that initial April draft and made minor revisions. These changes are reflected in the recommended draft that are before you now. Here's a quick summary of what's different. We updated our icon in the comprehensive plans color wheel to better reflect the broader scope of our program's work. It now includes architecture, historic preservation, and our, excuse me, historic interpretation and archaeology. We added locations of historic resources and neighborhood reference points throughout the plan, as suggested by the LRPC. We also added references to biophilia to strengthen the connection between the historic built environment and the county's natural environment. Lastly, we made several clarifications throughout the plan, including in the Statement of Historical and Cultural Significance and in the Regulation Goal. So in conclusion, staff recommends that the Planning Commission support the updated Historic and Cultural Resources Plan and that the County Board adopt the plan update. And so with that, that concludes the staff presentation and we're happy to answer whatever questions the commissioners have. Thank you. Madam Clerk, are there any public speakers? No speakers. Thank you. So the matter is with the commission. Um, transportation? <laughs> yeah, this was not before transportation, so there was no report. No report. Any reports from any of our in our committees of the whole? Okay, great. So I think this matter went pretty quickly the last time we heard it. Um, are there any discussion items? Uh, Commissioner Lentum. Oh, I was just going to ask. Question Did I miss? The oh, no, there's no public speaker. Oh, okay. we, we do have a representative from HLRB here. Okay, we can hear from HLRB. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, my name is John Aiken. I'm the vice chair for the uh, HLRB. Uh, I'd like to take a few moments to thank the Planning Commission and county staff for giving me a chance to speak this evening on behalf of HLRB in support of the new Historic and Cultural Resources Plan. As we previously stated in the September 28, 2023 uh, HALRB chair's letter to the county board and reiterated again at the October 4th Planning Commission meeting uh, where my colleague, Ms. Joan Lawrence, uh, represented us, we continue to strongly endorse the recommended draft 
of the Historic and Cultural Resources Plan, the HALRB has been supportive of the entire multi-year process to update this plan. Its success reflects the Historic Preservation uh, Program staff's hard work alongside of that their consultant, Birchwood Planning. The HALRB cannot emphasize our appreciation enough uh, for the dedication of county staff. Sorry about that. That was my first time. Um, the updated plan presents the county with an opportunity to consider the preservation of historic and cultural resources with a current perspective. We believe this plan will adequately incorporate the best approach to the historic preservation in the county, and we want to ensure the HPP has the appropriate resources and staff to implement all phases of the plan. We therefore highly recommend the Planning Commission likewise support this plan and recommend that the County Board adopt it so staff may set to work and implement the critical historical preservation strategies that will further enrich Arlington's historic and cultural resources. Thank you for your time. Thank you, and I apologize for not um, before coming over here before I came to you, so sorry about that. Um, Commissioner Lynn, tell me. The only thing I want to talk about, and it wouldn't change anything in this, is more the the additional keeping records or getting information and comments on that. Okay. Should go ahead or? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm totally in favor of, of doing that. I'm wondering whether we have already maybe the nucleus of that in the um, Arlington room with the library. Do we have to create a second one or are you going to be building on what's already there? I get, and of course, another source is the Historical Society, but I think most of this information is, is found in the Arlington Room. Thanks so much for um, bringing that up. And I think that what we're looking for with the Historic Preservation Program is we're recognizing that there's a need, at least internally, we find that there's many um, opportunities where we'll be talking with our colleagues and different divisions and find that they have a nice little cache of um, documents um, that really tell us how maybe a project came about. And we think that that's where we really want to kind of focus it, but it completely makes sense for that to also support our partnership goal with going to some of the other divisions like the Center of Local History or our outside partners like the Arlington Historical Society. So it's something we're definitely wanting to do and we feel the plan will guide us during that when we look at it with our work plan. Okay, great, because these are really interesting things. And I know that there would be people in the community who would like to have access to that sort of information. So it, it shouldn't be just totally internal to your office. It, it You should find a way to make sure it can be shared within the larger community, because there really are so many people that are interested in, in this very topic and, and the information that you would be able to uncover. So thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Berkey. Yeah, I, I apologize if this was um, previously discussed, um, <clears throat> but as somebody who worked on a neighborhood plan in my neighborhood several years ago, um, I, I really appreciate the focus on neighborhoods, but um, was there any consideration to um, when, so, you know, there's the neighbor, it used to be called neighborhood conservation. Now it's the Arlington neighborhoods program. Um, that program is really about, you know, neighborhoods kind of coming together and thinking about projects, but most neighborhoods and mine included, and actually John <laughs> helped me out. We're both Douglas Parkers. Um, you know, we, we also looked at, you know, history. We wanted to consider whether there might be projects in the future where we would be thinking about historic preservation. Um, did you give it any all thought to that, like supporting those efforts in any way? Um, do you mind speaking to that? Sure, that's a great question. And just for those who aren't aware, the Arlington Neighborhoods Program is in the same division 
as historic preservation programs. So they are our colleagues that we see and, and talk with every day. Um, and the plan allows us to explore in our partnerships goal, working with community groups and community partners, such as the Arlington Neighborhoods Program and the ARNAC, Arlington Neighborhood Advisory Committee. I think I got that right. Um, and being able to be a resource to neighborhoods, especially those who are either in the process of updating their existing neighborhood plans or perhaps creating new plans for those neighborhoods that don't have them. Um, so to be able to help them write those history sections and then more longer term, being able to work with those individual neighborhoods and help and better understand what are their preservation priorities. Do they want historic markers? Do they want interpretation? Do they want to protect certain historic buildings? We could work with them together on those kinds of activities. That's awesome. Uh, thank you very much. Commissioner Mackley? Um, I talked a lot the last time for the RTA, but I've been thinking a little bit more about this. Um, I'm totally fully supportive of everything you guys do. As you know, I'm a big proponent because I also live in an honorifically historic row house here, which is a fascinating history. Um, and I'm really amazed at how much the small team has done over the years as I've watched the team and various people. I'm curious, um, I know that when I was in college, various companies and concerns came to us and offered us internships in a way that we actually took on a project for them and produced something that actually was in many times used. So wondering if maybe you've gone to a local high school or have thought about going to a local college to see some facet of your program where you need more help, where you could kind of get them involved and A, they would learn more about the history of Arlington, which they probably don't know, and B, um, you know, you, you might reap some benefit from that. Um, also, uh, especially f like in my neighborhood, for instance, I know it would take buying up all of our little row houses or eminent domain to take ours, but thinking back to Febri, Lothrop House, um, I still am concerned that we don't have enough in place yet before a 4.1 application comes in. And I know in my own neighborhood, I am sort of the keeper of the history now that I'm the oldest person living there. I never was before, but now I am. And so I let people know that we have this honorific uh, historic designation and that there are tax credits for people. Now, there are a lot of people in that neighborhood that own that are absentee owners, they're investors, they don't probably care. But some of the newer people that come in do care. But are we relying on the me's out there or what is the system for that? So those are just some things that I mentioned the last time that I'm still thinking about, but tremendous work, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Guerin. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Yes, this plan is lovely. We have had such high quality plans in the last couple of years, and this is one of them. Um, it's so comprehensive and thorough, and you've been so responsive to comments. My question has to do with one of the questions in the matrix that you shared of comments you received from the public, <clears throat> and I didn't see it in this plan. Any reference to the Italian quarry off Marcy Creek Ravine? And it is really interesting, and some of that equipment is still there on the Potomac Heritage Trail. And so I I didn't see it in here, and I wondered if you'd decided not to include it and also like how you decide what you can and can't include in something like this when we go to the plan to get more information. Thanks. 
Thank you, Commissioner Guerin. That's, that's a very good question. Um, we went back and forth even in last year before the initial draft hit the, hit the streets, so to speak, um, trying to decide on all the content that should be in that important contextual chapter of the uh, Statement of Historic and Cultural Significance. And where we landed was, because this is an aspirational plan meant to be visionary and meant to last us several years, we couldn't possibly include every single aspect of Arlington County's history in that one chapter. So we tried to make a conscious decision to make it as diverse and robust as we could without making it encyclopedic. So we have taken note of that comment um, in terms of a further research topic, um, but at this time, it's not our intention to add more historical information into that context. Commissioner Yeah, I'd like to follow up on both Commissioner Bagley and Commissioner Guerin. Um, Commissioner Guerin, she's right. In our ravines have all sorts of fascinating old things that you wonder why they're there and what happened. Donaldson Run has some interesting things on them. And the ravine down from the Marriott has remains of the brewery, some equipment that's actually still at the bottom there. I mean, there's all sorts of fascinating things that are just laying around. Um, in Arlington. So just to flag it, again, you're right, it shouldn't necessarily be in here, but to say that um, Commissioner Bagley is absolutely right about it. leveraging yourselves. There's only so many people who, in your office to do work. One project I would love to see and would probably be a great one to have kids in high school or college crowdsource and do is literally go through all of the deeds in the courthouse for our to document the extent of restrictive covenants. That would be a really useful exercise to be able to show where those restrictive covenants were within the county and how that echoes down through the years. Um, and it's something that could be, since they're public records, it would be something that could be easily done easily. It was something that would lend itself to having interns, um, students do something like that. And it doesn't have to be done immediately over a course of a few years it could it could be accomplished and it would be interested and give give them good experience and give us valuable information so anyway thank you i don't know if okay good sorry i i didn't see the red button sorry um thank you for all of those comments and i think that one of the things to kind of point out with especially with the kind of industrial history of arlington um is something such as thinking about where the um Marriott was and everything's kind of leading down to the river. I think that those are some aspects of history that we're hoping to explore if we're able to get more of an archaeology program and have that expanded. And that could be definitely an angle that could work um, with whomever would take that role. Um, I also think with the partnerships goal that we have, trying to strengthen the partnerships that we have right now to try and see where we can collaborate more um, with either internships or maybe contract work, um, we definitely would be looking towards that because there's so many things that we want to achieve and we would have to do that with kind of everybody being able to help um, at a common goal. And we're starting, we are doing that now and it'll just continue over the next 10 years. Um, and then I think also the, um, the restrictive covenants um, and doing those types of research projects, that is something that we want to keep going on because I think that too many people think that history has already been written and that's not the case. And so we really want to keep expanding on that 
and um, which is definitely something that we tried to do with the plan, kind of showing our different equity goals that we had and really recognizing that that's one of the things that we didn't really anticipate at first when we were doing this update. And as we kind of all have lived over the past couple of years, seeing that that's a major goal for Arlington County, we wanted to really make sure that the plan reflected that as well. Okay, I have a question. Actually, I have two questions. Um, the equity aspirations component or addition, I guess, revision <laughs> to include the equity aspirations. I guess I want to know or better understand what the distinction between an, uh, the equity aspiration is and maybe more of what I would want to see in these um, spaces around equity impacts, right? So where we come into these plans when we're thinking about historic preservation, when we're thinking about archaeology, when we're thinking about these issues, architecture, um, and then connecting it more closely with impact. And I don't know if it if it's just a vocabulary thing um, when we're saying aspiration versus impact, but I guess I just wanted a little more clarity on that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair, for that that question. So the the equity aspirations were something that we envisioned to be milestones to help us. If we if we since we have one included for every goal, that is going to help. That's there to remind us that as we are implementing the plan and the recommendations that are in there, that if we are able to succeed at these aspirations, then we are accomplishing some of our major goals outlined in the plan, including education partnerships, equity, and accessibility. And so right now we have them as aspirations, as things we are going to strive towards. And as we work with county leadership on implementing the plan, we can work together to come up with some more concrete, um, more concrete milestones to really keep us accountable. So as we are starting to check off the things on the implementation matrix, um, we can then be able to analyze and assess how those aspirations have allowed us to further our preservation work. So I think it's something that's going to happen incrementally over time, but we wanted those in there to remind us that we need to be, we need to have this focus on all of our, on all of our goals. And I think, and I appreciate that. Thank you for that. I just worry that this brings me kind of mentally back to the Joyce Motors project. And when we were thinking about, um, HRI, when we're thinking about what does that mean, um, how it ended up becoming kind of like a toothless index for us. Um, and I think about that in terms of the architecture there, where we were trying to look at what that what preservation in that space really meant. And I feel a little bit concerned about even the terminology aspiration here, because it feels a little empty. Um, it doesn't feel like, you know, and this is maybe just a little bit of preference for me, but it, it doesn't feel like there's really some form of like strategic place that we are going to ensure that we meet when it comes to historic preservation. Um, it, it, it Aspiration puts me back into that same place of, of the Joyce Motors conversation. And then with that is my second point. Um, looking again at HRI and looking again at, at how we are identifying um, spaces and places, I guess. That uh, conversation, again, felt very much like a suggestion. And it, it didn't, you know, when we were all up here struggling with how we were going to handle that project, 
um, for some of us, including me, if I felt like what we were trying to do was protect some spaces that we had identified, but it didn't work out that way. And so I also want to kind of be thinking about that as we move forward, is that when we identify a place, maybe we should be thinking of it as a presumption of preservation versus a suggestion. Any thoughts? Come on, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. I think I think I think that's that's exactly um, the way I would have have liked to uh, think that I could put it, but I totally associate myself with that sentiment. Thank you, Mr. Pfeiffer. Can we mark that down in the record, please? <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Sarley and I <laughs> are right there with each other. If, it, uh, if it's okay, can I respond to that? Because I really what? I really appreciate those comments, especially about the HRI. And that is something that I think, you know, I think that when we were talking about the plan, we're also working behind the scenes with working on our implementation plan for this and creating our, you know, initial goals and then um, for the first three years and then the next four to six uh, and then beyond. And the HRI is one of the things that is going to be considered in our first priority goals yeah. of what we want to achieve. And we'll be working with our colleagues to try and figure out what exactly that would mean. But I think the reason that we're looking at that, not only to expand it, update it, um, but also the fact that, you know, how can we make it better? And that was one of the things that we really took to heart from our planning colleagues to try and improve the tools that we have. Everybody loves brand new sexy tools. That would be great for everybody. But sometimes it is the matter of just trying to improve what we have and we really were very forward thinking when we created the HRI, because there's not many examples of it um, in the country, mm -hmm. um, but that would be something that we would want to achieve. And please mark that in the record, because <laughs> I will want to go back to you all when we're in that process. Um, I also think that your comments about the equity aspiration, I think we really were trying our best to use, be very thoughtful with the language that we use in the plan. And I think that that was kind of our initial um, thought would be as a reminder to us, because we're really trying to make sure that it's something we consider with every new thing that we're doing or new improvement that we're doing. Um, I think the Historic Preservation Fund um, is a great example and how we really made that a major player and how we um, scored many of the different applications that we received um, for that grant funding um, and making sure that there was some type of equity uh, uh, goal um, and that would um, be equal to what the county is wanting to see countywide. Um, and so I think, though, that as we continue to create these programs and improve these programs, that that's where that's what, like you were saying, it's it's seen as a reminding us because it's something that we want to not just put it in the plan and forget about it, but that it's something we want it to really be so that we can have preservation be. Uh, something that anybody can take advantage of, can really see the benefits of, and not just be the people that we um, kind of traditionally are seen as serving. We want to be able to serve everybody. So I, I just, you know, and this will kind of be my final comment on it. And I, I think about lots of comments that Commissioner Sarley actually makes um, from the dais on issues affecting historic preservation. I just one place that I feel concerned about is, as you say, there's so many components to the things that we're evaluating. 
And um, I think particularly in a space like historic preservation, we have to make sure that we're using the strongest language possible um, because oftentimes it feels like it's not on the same playing field as some of the other considerations that we're thinking about. And it is incredibly important, right? It is incredibly important for, as you say, to make sure that all people feel valued here in Arlington and they feel connected to Arlington. So um, I, I use the HRI as an example of where this has become, a, this has previously been uh, most immediately a struggle, but I, that's kind of where my space is around the concern with the language aspiration. Any other comments on this? Yes, sir. I'm uh, concerned about what you said as you started your remarks about the uh, funding for historic preservation. What's the total funding in the FY24 adopted budget for historic preservation? It's a very good question. Um, our funding has changed considerably in the in the past several years. Um, there, as part of the FY20 budget that we are in right now, if I have that correct, um, we unfortunately lost the majority of our consultant funding, um, despite the HLRB coming to bat for us um, as part of the, the budget deliberations um, earlier in the year. And so we have very limited funding right now to be able to hire consultants to undertake projects like the HRI and um, do historic markers and all sorts of other needs that we have as a program. Uh, so right now we only have a few thousand dollars. Um, before all the budget cuts started affecting um, our line items, we had 60,000. So we are down to almost a fraction of what we originally had as a program. I'd also like to piggyback and say that we have been a team of four since 1998. 2000. Sorry, 2000. So I just want to kind of also point that out there. Um, taking a quick look at the all-in-one budget online, um, it suggests that historic preservation was cut more than any other line of business in CPHD. Um, the best plan is only hortatory if you don't have the resources to support it. Um, I, I might suggest that you all meet with the Fiscal Affairs Advisory Commission. They can sometimes be effective in raising small but important issues uh, to the county board. Um, that's all I have, Madam Chair. Thank you. Commissioner Strider. Peter, you were right on my line of thought. Um, I had I was going to ask. So first off, I want to say I really love the plan. Um, as someone who was involved in staff plans and all that, I can I can see that this is very well written and very well put together. So, um, but I wanted to ask, it, what is the role of grants, be it federal or local or state, um, in this plan, and how the the uh, preservation division is going to move forward? Um, you know, I know that there's you can really get a lot done uh, with grants, and especially if it's on somebody else's uh, tab, you can really, uh, really make the job easier. And you know, you mentioned staffing. Uh, do you all have somebody on staff who pr prioritizes uh, finding grant work and things like that uh, of that nature? 
Thank you, Commissioner Schreiner. Um, you're looking at half the team that uh, works on grant applications right. as well as grant administration. Right. Um, so in the past, um, my predecessor, as well as myself previously, we would apply for grants for major projects like architectural surveys, putting neighborhoods and buildings on the National Register of Historic Places. I would very much think, Ms. Bagley, your neighborhood was probably completed <laughs> as part of a survey project that received a state or federal grant. Um, in recent years, though, particularly because we've been involved in some really complicated and long-lasting projects, including this plan update, we haven't had a lot of time to be seeking out grant funding, but that's something that we do plan to we do plan to attempt that again. Um, and then in terms of grants that the plan offers, um, one of the, the main recommendations that we wanted to accomplish as a result of this updated plan was being able to create the Historic Preservation Fund. And thanks to the generosity of the county manager and the county board, we got a jump start on that before the plan was even done. Mm -hmm. So we've both been administering, um, primarily Lauren here, um, the, the inaugural round of that. And so there is a lot of community interest based on the public feedback that we got through our engagement to continue to keep that fund going and to continue to offer additional financial incentives for property owners. And just to kind of piggyback on that, um, we've also noticed in the trend that a lot of state and federal um, grants that are out there right now are very much focused on a racial equity equity aspect to it. And mm -hmm. so one of the things, though, that we were hoping that as we've been developing our implementation plan, we are also putting in there, you know, where it would be great to have um, more resources and staff to be able to reach these goals faster. And we are hoping that a planner position would be um, somebody that would take that focus because that would be their role. Their role would not be just going for grants, but that would be the focus of really trying to build upon um, moving historic preservation into the future and what are the goals that the county has. And so if we were to get that type of position, they would be able to focus more on getting state or federal grants that way as well. Gotcha. Yeah. It makes me think too what uh, Commissioner Lantelmi had said about um, interns as well. That that's uh, an opportunity as well. That's a little easier on the <laughs> on the coffers here. But yeah, that thank you. That's really good, insightful. Thank you, Commissioner Guerin. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, so again, terrific plan, and I'm even more impressed now that I know there's just a couple of you doing this. I think the only other thing I wanted to add to this discussion, and that's because I'm, you know, I'm almost at the end of my term, and I just want to remind my colleagues that there's value in saving and trying to preserve some of these places because they are historic, but also we continually redevelop and we're growing. And to the extent that we can save some of these places or have historical references or preserve a facade in situ, it helps us with some placemaking and, you know, sort of some some time marking as we keep growing and changing. So there's so many benefits to this if we can think about it early on in the process. Okay, well said. Let's go to a vote on our one votable agenda item. Commissioner Bagley. Aye. Gearin. Aye. Schreiner. Aye. Berkey. Aye. Lynn Tomey. Aye. Robertson. Aye. Sarley. Aye. Weir. Aye. Patel. Aye. The motion. Oh, we didn't even we didn't read the motion. Right. Jesus, very interesting. <laughs> You're so efficient. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys let me go all the way around. <laughs> I was like, we didn't even read the motion. Sorry, but it carried. It was a preview. Commissioner Berkey, can you read the motion? Here you go. I'll give it to you. 
Yes. <laughs> All right, so I will motion that the Planning Commission recommend that the County Board adopt the attached resolution, attachment A, to update the historic uh, and cultural resources plan as shown in attachment B. Is there a second, Commissioner Schreiner? Oh, thank you, then, Tony. Oh. Okay, let's do this again. Commissioner Bagley. Aye. Garen? Aye. Schreiner? Hmm. Aye. <laughs> Berkey? Aye. And Tommy? Aye. Robertson? Aye. Tharley? Aye. Weir? Aye. Patel, I now the motion carries nine to zero. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for a wonderful plan. Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you for you. all your efforts. Have a wonderful evening. We appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> Clerk, what's the next thing? <laughs> Thank God we're not doing any more motions tonight. <laughs> Item number two is a commercial market resiliency initiative 2.0 this is an informational item only we have mark mcculley and jill hunger to present this item this evening hi welcome well thank you very much for allowing us to participate virtually um likely as you can hear from my voice this is why i'm not joining you i don't want to spread the wealth um i'll go ahead and Just making certain that everybody can see this on the screen. Thank you. Mark, if you want to start. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Thanks for this opportunity to update the Planning Commission on our discussions internally and most recently with the County Board in a work session about what we're calling Commercial Market Resiliency 2.0. Uh, as you uh, are well aware, uh, at least the ones around that were on the commission uh, last year, um, we did a lot of, of work and took actions to amend the use table. And Jill will walk through that a little more just to remind everyone. Um, but this is a new new process that is, uh, as we always say, is the county manager's biggest priority right now. And the board um, certainly was supportive in the public work session. So we'll start off by talking about why CMRI is, is so important to the manager and to the board in the context for that. So we have seen, obviously, this is not a news, new news story, but we've seen significant and unprecedented change. And in those moments, resilient communities think require to, to think differently about things in, in some areas and, and take some bold action. Um, the three buckets that we often talk about is um, the pre-pandemic movement to less square feet per office employee. So less square feet taken by tenants was already having a significant impact on our vacancy rate and valuations. But obviously the pandemic um, uh, accelerated that tremendously and now as we're looking at having come out of the pandemic or at least the, the the heart of the pandemic we're seeing once again tenants taking less space uh, making different types of decision relative to full telework or hybrid uh, and this is having an impact on the office demand not only in Arlington but regionally the the second is that the the 
this potential for you know, real structural change in the office vacancy and valuations uh, explore, gives, requires us to explore new pathways to drive economic growth. Uh, this is both on the demand side as well as the supply side, as we'll get to. And then finally, other jurisdictions regionally and nationally are also impacted by these changes and are trying to identify and implement creative solutions to encourage their own economic growth. The most resilient communities will get speed to market will, will, and will, be, will act bold. So a quick primer on just what's going on in the commercial office markets. As I said, employers still very much in flux on balance between return to office and work from home. Uh, they're, as I meant, already mentioned, they're taking typically smaller tenant deals than pre-pandemic. Um, and while we talk a lot about office vacancy and its impact on, on values, we're also seeing a major shift in the capital markets. Uh, and loan defaults have, once again, not, not unique to Arlington, but have been significantly on the rise, a lot more distressed assets. And therefore, when those get traded, they get traded at a significantly less value, which obviously doesn't affects our assessments and our ability to, to, to tax those buildings. As an example, a recent sale of a uh, high vacancy office sold for 66% less of its assessed value than pre-pandemic, that uh, even some of our more healthier buildings in the 20, 15 to 20% range, we've seen, we've seen double digit drops in valuation simply because of the interest rate market and other capital market trends. We always want to end though, that once again, Arlington is a very resilient community. This is a unique and unprecedented challenge that we're facing. Um, we had BRAC, uh, we had the 2008, 2009 uh, capital markets crisis, but Arlington has been resilient and Resiliency, once again, and, and is still a very much attractive high-tech and federal contracting location. But again, we need to continue to evolve our supply to meet new market demands. So what's the scale of the potential impact? You'll see where we were pre-pandemic, 15.2% office vacancy, and where we are now, just over 21%. We did a comprehensive analysis of all of our buildings, uh, office buildings, uh, which are about 328 buildings and 42 million square feet of rental building area. And our analysis indicates, based upon a variety of quantitative and qualitative factors, that 76 of those, uh, our 17 million square feet of office space, is at risk due to sustained vacancies or obsolescence. This still doesn't account for the buildings we don't know about that have outstanding maturity and debt and can't refinance in, in today's marketplace, um, much like we've seen the news headlines of properties in Monday and Monday properties, properties in Roslyn. Uh, again, that was a debt maturity issue and not necessarily a uh, vacancy rate issue. So why does it matter? Well, as we all know, we've been very proud of the fact that Arlington has been a 50-50 fiscal community, meaning 50% of our taxes from 
assess value taxes from residential, 50% from commercial. Um, we are now at 55.45, and office as part of that has has decreased dramatically. Uh, even maintaining 45% has been due to a very strong multifamily apartment market. So when we when we look at that that is those decreases, uh, taxes either have to have to either have to go up, or services have to decline. So as I referenced, AD and working with our CPHD partners and other partners across the county are working on a two-pronged approach. One is which is we're not forgetting about attra attracting new tenants, uh, keeping them in Arlington when they are here, uh, attracting them from other places across the country to increase that demand side. But CMRI 2.0 is really about rethinking office supply. and and removing from the 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 supply obsolete or non-competitive buildings that drag down the rest of the healthy marketplace. And this will include discussions that we'll get into later this, this evening about streamlining zoning and land use processes, looking at conversions, redevelopment, repositioning, um, and other tools. So as I just referenced, the CMRI 2.0 is really made up of three buckets, redevelopment, looking at how teardowns and reconstruction of entirely new buildings, um, how can how can that process be streamlined, conversions, where you're taking an existing building and reinvesting in it as an adaptive reuse, and that sometimes includes what we call conversion plus, which is where sometimes there's opportunities to add maybe one or two floors, but not to the max FAR if you do full redevelopment. Uh, but that sometimes has a significant impact on the financial feasibility. And then repositioning. This is where, again, we're not saying we don't need any office in Arlington. Uh, we just think we have too much of, of ones that are not competitive. Um, so, But many owners do look at repositioning of their building as it's still an office building, but making a significant investment. So an example with this would be Boston Exchange across from the Boston Quarter, um, where an office owner bought that and did put in significant amounts, tens of millions of dollars into that building to refresh it and to attract new tenants. And now I'll kick it off to Jill. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, members of the Planning Commission, I want to go over a little bit more about the guiding principles, strategic goals, and our approach associated with uh, the CMRI 2.0. This slide might look somewhat familiar to you. We presented to you about the Commercial Market Resiliency Initiative, the CMRI 1.0, and really looked at um, three buckets in new uses in commercial buildings. How do we consider how we get those new uses in those buildings and the types of entitlements? And we really focused on that. And out to the other side was always this idea of other process changes. Uh, so again, you um, members of the Planning Commission saw a lot of these new uses as we brought them forward. But now what we're trying to do is focusing more on the building supply rather than the actual demand. So what we want to do with CMRI 2.0 is tackle the big regulatory issues resulting in big changes 
Uh, so really taking and looking at a greater focus on the major process changes, which could include omnibus site plan amendments, uh, relook at our standard conditions. How do we consider administrative change requests, major site plan amendments and minor site plan amendments, office to re, uh, residential conversion, how we look at our club studies and other elements that really look at these process changes. As Margaret pointed out earlier, you know, looking at some of these more like larger strategic goals of improving our, our redevelopment process, creating a more streamlined process for building repositioning, creating new processes for adaptive reuse or these conversions or conversions plus, an ability to address regulatory relief tools for capturing tenant demand. And this is really looking at how do we help and assist our tenants in opening their doors as quickly as possible. And then finally, what can we do to enhance the placemaking efforts? Again, as a way to support everybody um, and, and support all of these other strategic goals, but also assisting in bringing people back to the office. We have developed ourselves some internal guiding principles. And really what we've done is sort of bookended a little bit of taking big swings and a really strong community education of why this matters. Um, we recognize that there's a sense of urgency associated with this. So we're doing a tactical approach um, in, in looking at our various work streams. And as, as I said, these work streams are discrete, but there is cross-pollination um, throughout. Uh, you'll see them um, shortly. But I think the most important thing, and you saw this as part of the CMRI 1.0, is coming forward with incremental outcomes that rather than pulling everything together in one large package that's going to take multiple months, maybe even years, we're going to be bringing things forward to you, uh, first as SOCO and then as the Planning Commission, incrementally as we see it appropriate. And, and uh, it meets sort of you know, the test of, does it move the needle? And you know, what are the other levels of effort? So again, we're going to continue that CMRI engagement approach. So it's a streamlined approach for those changes that have very limited impact. We're gonna continue our public education about commercial real estate issues. We'll continue to have appropriate levels of community engagement for each of the work streams, <laughs> excuse me, with a continued focus on the nimbleness, the urgency and suitable risk-taking. And we do want to you know, embrace opportunities for innovative engagement strategies. And just this graphic is just a reminder of how you worked with us very closely in, in working through our ZOCO and the Planning Commission and ultimately the County Board process for a variety of ordinance amendments. So at this, I think um, Mr. McCauley will be wrapping up with the final work stream discussion and our final next steps. Thank you. So I know this slide is a bit, bit, bit of a um, bit of something to look at, but what we tried to do was list all potential work streams and then tie them into how they often do cross across these different policy, these different goals. I will say that a couple of things that we just want to provide clarity on is 
This is not an exhaustive list. Um, and there, as we do scoping work this winter, on these, some will drop off, some may be added, uh, some will split into other types of work streams. But you can see sort of the range of work that the manager has put into all our respective work plans relatively to providing uh, some regulatory relief and streamlining of processes. Uh, next slide. There are also related efforts. Uh, your colleagues in the ED's Economic Development Commission just recently released their findings and recommendations of things that they think could be done to address the office market um, challenges. Uh, that included a significant amount of discussion of financial incentives. I can tell you staff priorities today is not to provide financial incentives unless we, they're, they're well thought out and targeted. Uh, because often when you reach a a challenge point, trying to buy your way out of the problem is actually counterproductive. Uh, we are going to tie some a lot of these changes to any potential impacts on demographics in the fiscal base of the county. And then the manager will be starting this month the budget budget cycle. Um, and this work is going to be part of that discussion about what the impact on the FY25 to 27 budgets may be. So next steps, uh, when we look at where we are now, you'll see we're now making the rounds with some of our commissions. Um, we had the county board update through the public work session. Um, it was the 16th, I think. Um, and then we'll likely be coming back to the board again in some form um, with some of the with some of the scoping work to be done on some work streams, so we can lay out a priority list and and a um, and a, and a timing expectation. And very likely we, we could come back. We would come back to you as an information session to provide that further update. We are engaging in an education and communication process. We understand that this story, the story needs to lead with why we, why are we doing this? And we want uh, through various channels for that message to be consistent and to be um, continually uh, refreshed um, as we think about how to, how to present information publicly. Like I said, then we're, we're we're already in the process of our work stream scoping, due diligence, and prioritization. And then, as Jill mentioned, we expect in 2024 to see a number of incremental actions, um, all with the appropriate level of analysis and and where needed public engagement. Um, but the idea here, as Jill had referenced, is we want we want to get out in front of um, some of these problems and not try to let the big ideas sort of not allow us to, to pursue some smaller positive changes. So Jill, if you can go back to the work stream slide. So I don't know if there'll be any specific questions about some of those, but we're happy to walk you through it. So again, we, we, we went through in greater detail with the county board on some of those. So if you haven't seen it, that's also a matter of record. Right. 
And I wanted to include this um, last slide on the bottom is the web page that we have stood up for the commercial market resiliency. And in that will be a link. It has a more uh, fulsome presentation that we gave to the county board during the, the work session. There you go. Um, any thoughts, questions, comments? Mr. Starling? Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, yeah, I guess I have a few questions on, on how the work stream. Um, first of all, thanks for the presentation. Thanks for um, trying to get ahead of the issue. I think you're right. It is an issue and it's something that I've particularly been curious, you know, um, ever since COVID and this transition to remote what that would do to office space and office space development and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, we're seeing the outcome. So I appreciate staff getting on top of it and trying to um, get ahead of it. So I think if I understand correctly on slide 16, which is up, um, we would try to ease some of these um, sort of regulations or, or ex what I would hope to do, right? Like for instance, I'm looking at the green building. So I think that makes sense, right? We, we, ease up on some of these um, restrictions, if I'm understanding this correctly. But I would love to see staff put a sort of almost a counter proposal, right? So like one of the things that I'm always harping on is the preservation of existing structures. I think absolutely, we're like, yeah, okay, fine. If you're not gonna tear down this building and you're just gonna do a renovation, let's say, you know, 50% or less of the building uh, is being, or the structure is being preserved or something, you know, some percentage or some sort of a strategy, right? Where then it makes sense because I'd hate to be sort of penny wise and pound foolish on some of these things. And I don't mean to sound that this is pennies, but um, you get the idea. Like we solve the immediate problem and then, you know, we go back to the long term environmental impact problem or any of the other issues. The other thing that I always um, try to say when we have the special GLUP studies, and this is something that I think is more for us as a community, um, both commissions and staff, is um, the idea of special GLUP study always makes me a little uneasy because it's essentially a flaw in our plan, right? So I think, again, as much as we have a community um, commit to getting ahead of these issues by intelligent planning and putting things on paper so that, again, we demystify the process of coming to Arlington, right? That is very helpful to the economic um, the development team to say, here's, here's, the, here's the game plan, right? It's really clear. It's a really great plan. We have our GLUP is really easy to read and really to understand and implement. And I think this is one of the things that I, I, I would love to see staff really push so that we're clear that when we're giving up green building standards, we're gaining, you know, on some other way that saves money, you know, to the sort of future tenant and whatnot. So I totally get the strategy. But um, those are my two cents. Thanks. Yeah, and just to, as a quick, I should have mentioned this when I introduced the slide, but a lot of these things are also, are also processes that are already underway. So to your point about green building, the DES team that it was already in the process is updating the green building standards has already prioritized embedded carbon 
as something that should be valued often as much, if not more, than just rebuilding a building with better systems. Uh, I think you can have both in, for certain in certain areas, but I think that's certainly one. And then the special glove study, as you know, uh, this has been in planning's work plan already, so they're already thinking about how that process can maybe be improved. If, if if I may make one more comment, sorry. Um, and then just simple things like site and ordinance flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, I'm not sure how much of an impact that will have either way, but I think, you know, there's a lot of areas that we can allow a little bit more of creativity and flexibility without impacting the the urban fabric that we're trying to go for. Thank you. Yep. Did you have something? Um, thank you, Madam Chair. I want to align myself with Commissioner Shirley's comments. When I looked at these, that was the very first thing that sprang to my mind as well. It's a lot easier for us to incentivize and support um, the redevelopment of a building when we're not tearing it down, we're um, being more energy efficient about it, and we're retaining the character of the community. Um, secondly, you know, I think the other things that might help us prioritize and be able to support some of these things as they come forward is how they align with some of our recently um, our, our county initiatives for equity and biophilia to the extent that we have proposals that come in that, you know, that need to address some of these changes, um, but that also move forward on some of those other key visions that the county is trying to uh, see some progress with. And then lastly, because um it's been a couple of years since I've chaired Zoco, but to the extent that you start seeing a pattern in things where you feel like, gosh, we're constantly coming in to make this change, I think in general we're very supportive to make a change to the ordinance rather than look at these piecemeal, especially looking forward, knowing that this is probably um, not going away. Thank you. Commissioner Bagley, Commissioner Lentelme, Commissioner Strider. Yeah, as I'm looking at this, um, Although my expertise in the county is residential real estate, um, I do know of a company that was looking for space on the RB corridor, first floor retail space. And one of the things that broke the deal for them was that the landlord said, these are the signs that we can allow. You'd have to go to the county for other signage. And it was a deal breaker for them. Um, which is neither here nor there, but if we're going to be flexible, I guess now moving forward with signage or even existing land use policies or practices for the buildings that are out there now that are within the way that we have structured this up until now, does this then set a precedent for them to come back and say, hey, you did it for this one, can we do it for this one, um, et cetera. And then I will also say, in the residential business, I was approached by somebody who had a friend who was in the system uh, rebuilding or building out office space for whatever their practice was going to be. And they ran into some snags in um, the permitting process. So, and what I was able to glean through my colleague and through staff in attempting to give them an answer was that they continued to need to work with staff to try to get to that. So somewhere in there, I'm thinking that there also has to be maybe another look at this, especially if we're trying to encourage versus making it difficult. And then within the community, you hear those, you know, waves come out. So um, 
you know, I, I would love to see us reuse or better use. And even before the pandemic, as a former Civic Association president for Balsam, Virginia Square, for years, we had always wondered with unused office space what we could be better doing to use it. So these these plans are, you know, fantastic. But I am curious about some of these. Thanks. Yeah, just to answer your quick question about the retroactive nature, if we change the zoning code, absolutely everyone gets to apply the current version of the zoning code to any future permit requests. The one thing we often run into is sometimes the site plan is the restrictive part of the discussion. And so you can make a change to the zoning ordinance, but if the site plan says something different, then you, then that does have to become another process. And we're trying to certainly think about that, about how we align those two better. Uh, I'd like to align myself with fellow commissioners here and just state that a number of these items um, which I definitely support, are things that we as a body have been banging the drum on to change almost since I've been on the commission. So um, it's definitely something you will get a lot of support from us on. Um, and it's a lot of these things are things that it's it's about, basically it's about time we're getting around to doing these. So thank you for, for push, definitely push them. Mr. Strain. Yeah, so I also want to say that it's, uh, I associate myself with uh, my other commissioners here. This, these sort of changes are overdue, and so I'm, I'm glad that they're being considered. And, you know, working in local government, you see this sort of trend, troubling trend happening when it comes to local government revenues. So I'm glad that Arlington's getting out ahead of this one. My question, and I guess this is more of a comment in general. So we deal with a lot of developers here who, you know, we, we talk to them about, Hey, can you can you preserve this building? It's been around for you know 50 years. There's probably some more life in it. And then they say, oh no, it was too hard. We had an engineer came by. It was too hard. Um, is there something in the plan for that sort of situ scenario situation? Because a lot of the developers just kind of brush those comments off. Um, they may do more research than than they let on, at least in our meetings. But um, from my interactions, a lot of the times it looks like maybe the, the work wasn't done all the way. And I'm curious if this plan is preparing for instances of that uh, situation. Yeah, so as a as a particular example, the scoping for that, um, for the conversion uh, ties into another of other processes, uh, but you're absolutely right. The, the two things that we've, when we've done, are look at other jurisdictions that have done more uh, are developers that ha are, have been more successful and are better looking even harder at a place like Arlington is the cost. Mm -hmm. um, now, here's where the office values dropping is a is a bad thing, but it actually helps pencil the conversions easier because you, yeah. you buy the building for a lot less. Um, and then time and certainty. So this will be obviously looking at a process through which you know, and again, when we get there, we'll 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 know what that looks like more. But uh, we're definitely looking at process for how they make we make these conversions. I don't want to say easier, but more befitting of the challenging nature of those projects. Um, the, the the reality is is that when we we wrote a memo on this last year, and we'll probably sort of update that a little bit. Um, a lot of buildings just don't work as conversions because the floor plates are. The building itself is old, 
And then we do a great job in planning in Arlington that allows for redevelopment. And so, um, you know, that's always an option for a developer if you go through that process. Gotcha. All right. Thank you. Commissioner Berkey. Yeah, I'm not sure where this question fits, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I have personal experience with this because our youngest uh, attends preschool in the basement of a successfully converted uh, office building just outside of Arlington in Alexandria. Um, is is thinking about childcare use something maybe that would fit within um, the office conversions here? But is that something that you're thinking about specifically? Um, in my personal experience in that building, that that worked out pretty well. They were able to reposition some outside space and do a pretty nice playground space. Um, they had an existing garage. You know, they were able to use a lot of the stuff that was already there. Um, and they didn't maybe necessarily have some of the challenges that, that you're going to have and, and uh, you know, otherwise, you know, residential conversion. So I don't know if you can speak to that. Yeah. And I, and, and I, the, it's not listed here because it's such a prominent part of the planning work plan, that planning and zoning work to do that, um, to make those tenants um, have an easier path, uh, particularly given that you know, a use permit is required as often a pretty uncertain process for many providers. Um, so we'll be supporting that effort, but uh, plan, that's one of planning's biggest priorities as well. So we're all working on the same team, but it's just, you know, that's that's been such a big part of their work plan. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I apologize for being late this evening and missing a lot of your presentation. Um, I did have a question about the commercial vacancy rate, which has been high for a very long time. The um, seven years that I was on the Fiscal Affairs Advisory Commission, we often talked about this as being one of the challenges. Um, we talked about how Arlington was trying to pivot to focus on tech companies and become the like East Coast Silicon Valley. And we've made a lot of progress here, which is fantastic. Um, but one of the concerns that we had 10 years ago with commercial vacancy rates going up was that um, a lot of the government agencies were leaving and it had become too expensive in Arlington for them to exist here. So they were moving out farther into the suburbs. So I'm interested with the commercial vacancy rate continuing to be high. Um, I know it's not in the uh, developer's interest for rents to come down a little bit, but with natural supply and demand, maybe that happens. And then the govern government agencies that left Arlington in the last decade or two decide to return, which is really great for um, commutes, fewer people on the road, we're so metro accessible here, rather than having people you know, drive out to the suburbs or other farther places. Yeah, so the, the, uh, in an earlier slide, there was a distinction between what we call the two prongs of, which, you know, AED is obviously um, leading, um, and co-leading with CPHD. One, in, one is, I think what you're referring is addressing office demand. So we still have a federal strategy. Uh, we focus it much more on retention um, in the past um, because, um, not, not because we're ignoring attraction, but it's a very good point. We, we, that's certainly something we're looking at. And if, if a, a landlord comes to us with a GSA deal that makes sense, um, we're always wanting to have the conversation. We've put up, put some significant, pretty significant financial incentives in the past deals to make that happen. Uh, but obviously, yes, we then we have our diversification strategy that looks at 
high tech, high growth markets. Um, we have the board gave us money last year to do an innovation fund to help very small startups grow and hopefully be the major tenants in five or 10 years. So yes, we're looking at all those things as well. It's not technically part of this process, but it's certainly a priority of our director at AED. Thank you. Um, are there any other comments, questions? Wonderful. Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, we look forward to, um, I guess, what's next. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all. Good, Good night. Bye. Madam Clerk. Our next item for the evening is the performance parking pilot project in commercial corridors. This, too, is an informational item only. We have Melissa McMahon, thank you, <laughs> <laughs> to present this item. It's getting very late, Melissa. Hello. <laughs> Good evening. Am, am I loud enough? Is that okay? Great. <clears throat> um, thank you, Madam Chair Patel and members of the Planning Commission. I'm really happy to be here tonight. Um, I'm returning. I think we last spoke in April-ish. It's been about six months since I came to visit to talk to you about this project. My name is Melissa McMahon. I'm Parking and Curb Space Manager for Arlington. And I'm here to give you an update on this exciting pilot that um, the Virginia Department of Transportation is funding. So in this slide set, I've got about 19 slides. I'm going to kind of go quickly through the front end and then spend a little more time on the back end. The back end being um, how we're working with data how we're measuring success and um, a discussion of the temporary ordinance changes we expect to be bringing forward this winter um, through a request to advertise and then a, um, a board action. So overall, the quick refresher is that this, this pilot project comes straight out of our master transportation plan. We have a policy that asks us to utilize parking meter pricing strategies that vary by hour and location to better match parking availability and demand. So this project is doing just that. We are looking at how we can make parking more available more often by providing people with useful information and by applying pricing as um, a means of behavior change, really. And hopefully by shifting behavior, reducing the negative impacts that we see with the search for parking today. Um, a few reminders, things that this project does not specifically aim to do, we are not seeking to increase overall parking meter revenue. Our performance, um, Measures for this project are about parking experience and performance and not about revenue. Um, we are also not increasing meter rates all across the board. We anticipate that there will be places where um, the rates go up based on demand and places where they could potentially go down and places where they will stay the way they are today. We are not um, decreasing the number of reserved ADA accessible spaces and there'll be several points of um, conversation around our accessible parking spaces in the course of my presentation. We are also not creating dynamically or fast changing um, meter pricing. So this is not like our express lanes on 66 and so on. It is also not like surge pricing in, um, in use with the ride hailing companies. We also wanna point out that we're not um, going about changing the type of curbside use from metered parking to something else entirely. We are looking at and studying the behaviors in our metered parking spaces today. As a refresher, this is a quick map of our project areas. So you can see that our project encompasses about 4,500 metered parking spaces in the Roslyn Ballston Metro Rail Corridor and in our Crystal City, Pentagon City and Potomac Yard Metro Rail Corridor. <clears throat> the exact number and locations of those spaces um, is tweaked 
basically by the nature of the ebb and flow of activity in our right-of-way. So you can imagine development projects, MOTs, they take up space, they give it back. So we continue to adapt to that, and it's kind of a little entertaining to run a long-term and broad-touching construction project, in air quotes, um, while those things are happening every day. But the good news is our installation is largely complete. Since we met with you in April, we began a construction process, which in, in, in these terms of this project, construction means installing little bitty sensors in core drilled holes in our pavement and putting up some gateways on telephone poles, or pardon me, um, traffic signal poles. It's not heavy duty construction, but it does take a lot of time. And so we had a flow of work throughout all of these corridors over the last six months. And, um, and we've hit almost all of those locations. We've, we've got about 4,200 sensors installed out of those 4,500 spaces. And the remainder are in those states of um, maintenance of traffic plan, construction, and in some sort of situation where we can't get to them just yet. We also conducted extensive outreach and engagement during this first phase, what I'll call the construction phase of the project. Um, the engagement at this time was focused on two main objectives raising awareness of the project itself, as well as asking folks to help us prioritize from among the project goals that were really established as part of the grant process. So we went out, we got a grant, the board accepted the money from Virginia Department of Transportation, and that grant had to basically say what the project was gonna be about and why. But nonetheless, we wanted to make sure we had a touch point back with the community on the relative importance of those different goals. So we did this in a number of ways. We um, we released a feedback form, which was open probably for a record number of days, but it wasn't necessarily a record number of responses. Um, we got 135 responses from our feedback form online. Um, we put 600 decals out on our multimeters, and those received about 1,700 click-throughs, um, sort of, I, I, I guess, term click-through, scan-throughs that got to our web page. Um, and that web page, again, was to make sure people were aware of the project and had a chance to either engage in the feedback form or just read the FAQs and understand what we were doing. We conducted four pop-ups with a total of 100 interactions at those pop-ups in different neighborhood locations. And we did see some difference between the, um, the kind of feedback we got on the feedback form online and the feedback that we got in those pop-ups. Another important element of our outreach was um, a door-to-door -door business engagement effort, which really went alongside our construction process. So um, over 260 businesses and residential buildings were touched as we went through each corridor and did that um, those installations. So roughly two weeks before we would hit the street with something that closed parking spaces, we were knocking on those doors and telling them what we were about to do and why the spaces would be closed temporarily and overall what the project was about. We also um, did, an, I'd say, a first phase roadshow. We came to visit you. We came to visit several other commissions and stakeholder groups to introduce them to the project, to get their early feedback, and to talk about the technology and the reasons why we were undertaking this initiative. So the high-level um, takeaways from the engagement in the first phase is really that people are interested in improving their experience with parking. Um, surprise, surprise. It's not the best experience today. Um, and especially when that solution saves them time. People are excited to see existing conditions. So this is a, a kind of data we've never had before. All we have that even remotely resembles this is transaction data from our meters. But what we are going to learn um, 
is that transaction data is nothing like actual occupancy data. So there's a lot of excitement about what we're going to see and how we're going to track our outcomes with these data. We also heard a lot from disabled parkers um, about how they want to retain good access. They are concerned about paying higher rates potentially, since the more distant and possibly cheaper options might not be feasible for them. Um, and I wanted to highlight that in the feedback form, the most important priorities appear to be travel time, confidence in finding parking on the first try, and that ease of finding parking. In our pop-ups, two additional priorities that were more prevalent than in the feedback form were reducing mobile emissions and reducing double parking. And we gather that these main differences between the two sources were that there were more drivers or frequent drivers in the feedback form respondents and the folks that we encountered in our pop-ups often um, self-describe themselves as not um, using their car all the time, but actually also experiencing the Arlington streetscape as pedestrians, as bicyclists, and just not using the car as, as readily. Um, in our feedback form, 16% of respondents reported a disability that impacted their mobility. And so those responses did seem, pardon respondents, did value more highly than other respondents, less time um, looking for parking, less double parking, and double parking is a challenge for them too because they are trying to find a safe space to engage with the curb so that they can get close to their destination. Um, people shifting to less well-used parking because, again, from that perspective of accessibility, they'd rather someone who can walk a long ways go a couple blocks away and take that space than take the one that's right in front. Um, as well as greater enforcement of our parking spaces today. And there's a full summary of this engagement um, information on our webpage. So some key project activities still underway. We are continuing to refine our pricing engine, which is the tool going to help us generate pricing recommendations each time and from our data. We are working actively on our public interface design. So one of the exciting deliverables out of this project at the same time that we change prices is two potential interfaces where people can see availability and price. I've got some screenshots of them side by side on this slide, but um, the takeaway here is they're pretty different. They show some of the same information, but in different ways, and they have some different functionality. So we are excited to both make them both available, to push them out through all of our possible channels, um, and we're talking creatively internally about how we can do that even better. Um, and also to get that feedback from people about what is what is useful. And I may have mentioned it in the, my earlier presentation on this, but these are proof of concept. You know, the county doesn't envision itself being a long-term provider of apps for things. Um, one of our key deliverables is an API so that third parties can develop visualizations of our data for us and we don't have to do it forever. Um, we do imagine that that's going to be something that happens within the um, time frame of the project. But we know we have to start somewhere to give people ideas and a sense of what's possible. We will also be demoing dynamic message displays in, um, in the street. So we have a couple places, we're working on some designs now, and our goal is roughly at the same time that we start pricing changes, we can have some demonstrations of what these signs look like. And if you can imagine, you would be driving and approaching an area where there's ample parking opportunities, but you're not sure which street to turn down. You're not sure whether to try the lot that's nearby, like here at the Courthouse Plaza area, but the sign can tell you the amount of spaces available and the price if you go in that direction. It might even be able to offer other kinds of information, such as available accessible spaces in that direction and, and that sort of thing. So some of the exciting um, 
exciting part for staff now and the exciting part, I think, for community members is that we're, we have a lot of data. <laughs> we have a whole lot of data. Um, and we really have a full, robust sensor system in since beginning of September. So this is actually just visuals from August data. And we are now developing similar types of visuals and analysis for September data. And then we will for October. But this is to give you a, a sense of the kind of work that staff has to do to, to understand the information. So one way that we expect to analyze these data has to do with the occupancy over time of day. And you can see at the top couple graphs here are lunchtime peak activity in neighborhoods, the bottom evening peaks in neighborhoods. These are averages across an entire neighborhood. So you can imagine that in some blocks or spaces within Crystal City or within Roslyn, the lunchtime peak could be higher. Um, and the same with the evening peaks noted here in Boston and Clarendon. On certain blocks, instead of it peaking at 74% at 8 p.m., it could well be in the 90s or full at that period of time. So this is, this is one way where we gauge are the hours of metering appropriate, are the, um, it, how are we going to think thematically about whether we want to change the price across the entire day, the entire metered time of day, or whether there are peak periods in which we want to change the price of metering. When we go from that neighborhood-wide snapshot, we also go down to literally a block-by-block -block snapshot. And we, can, and we have these data um, in real time, obviously, but we also have to think about what are the sensible chunks of time as we examine even at the block level. So I wanted to share with you this map as an example, Pentagon City, of the way that we can visualize thresholds of activity. So we're currently operating under a framework where we imagine that if blocks are over are 80% or more full, they are going to be problematic for someone finding a parking space. So it might be by the time they get there, that space is full. Um, it might be that they just pass by it and the space empties, but now they're on the wrong side of the block and they've got to circle all the way around. Um, so 80% and above is a problematic, is a potentially problematic level of occup occupancy. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, below 40% um, could be considered underutilized. And between 40 and 80% currently, we're sort of modeling as a optimized level of activity. So we're not currently targeting a specific number, like 65 is perfect kind of thing, but we're looking to see if we can pull things out of the extremes into a range in the middle that is a little more reasonable. And so the way this depicts it, red are blocks that are between the hours of 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Um, in this August data sample, um, over 80% full. The blocks that are white are between 40 and 80% full, and the blocks that are blue are less than 40% full. And you can see how some of this distribution, it's, a, it's interesting. We've got blocks that are over full on one side of the street with across the street, there's, there's a bit more availability. So this might speak to the nature of traffic flow and where people looking for parking are actually traveling. Um, we also know that we've got um, areas that are quite a bit less full, not very far away. So this is, it's a visual example of how we might be able to use both information that folks can access online, as well as something such as directional signage to say, hey, instead of continuing to drive north on Fern 
heading up to this area that you're, that is going to be really full, consider turning left and looking for parking in this other area where routinely there's a lot more availability there. And again, as a dynamic as a dynamic source of information, those signs aren't permanent and they can always direct people to the availability and the price at the various locations around town and, and the apps will do the same thing. So overall, um, we are measuring success through an iterative process um, that's data-driven and occupancy-based. So again, out of the, the main feedback from the community, community members looking for ease of finding parking, convenience and that sort of the time element of it, we really feel like occupancy continues to be our best metric because if we can reduce those peaks, we can make it easier for people to have that certainty that if they go somewhere to park, they're going to do so and um, not feel a sense of desperation and perhaps making poor driving decisions in the moment. Um, in order to execute, this iterative process has to gather data conduct analysis on the on the occupancy, create a new pricing recommendation, execute that pricing recommendation, and then again observe for another couple of months gathering those new data. We are also measuring success by partnering with an external team um, that VDOT is funding separately, who are going to be looking at this from a system optimization perspective. So this is pretty exciting because it's um, it's intentionally designed to be external and objective. VDOT has a different contractor operating for them, um, but using our project goals as their, as their measurement um, baseline. So they're trying to find other ways to measure whether we're meeting our project goals. They're using slightly different data sets than we are in our, in our base project scope. They will be taking observations of traffic volumes, um, taking observations of secure, circuity of travel, they will be using publicly available um, traffic signal video feeds, traffic camera video feeds to observe double parking in relation to the price changes and uh, the occupancy data. Um, so they're really trying to connect together other sources of data to look at the effectiveness of our project and feed us back, hopefully, um, findings and observations really in the flow of the project to help us improve um, our decision-making process. One of the other key sources of data that they will be collecting is direct traveler experience information through essentially a rating process. So our hope is that there will be, um, if you use Park Mobile and you park in the study area and you park in one of these particular areas that they're studying, you'll get a pop-up that says, hey, you parked, how was it? And it asks you to rate it. So it tries to keep like keep the bar as low as possible, but get engagement in the moment, starting from before pricing changes and continuing through pricing changes with the hope that we can see some change. Um, yeah. So we're excited that um, that they've been uh, resourced to work with us. And lastly, um, this really puts us at a place where we're bringing to the board a request for action with respect to amendments to the current parking meter ordinance to allow us to make administrative changes to meter prices over the course of the project period. So on these next two slides, I'm gonna go over some key features of the ordinance request and talk a little bit about why staff thinks they're necessary and appropriate um, for us to engage in our project. So um, first off, applicability and sunset clause, we are proposing an ordinance that's temporary in nature by its design. So there will be a sunset date. I have on here December 31st, 2025, 
Um, depending on when the board sees and acts on this, I would like to see it be a full two-year period so we can get about seven price changes in on a quarterly basis before we conclude and bring recommendations back to the board in advance of that sunset. So um, that said, whatever else gets in the way, it has a sunset clause so the board doesn't have to worry and things can fold back to what they're used to and what everyone's used to um, if there aren't actions um, specifically that they take at that time. And um, the, new, the, the new ordinance language only applies to meters in our project area. So we are retaining all of the language that exists today to govern the meters outside the project area. And that language will continue to be um, enforceable and applicable. The authority is with the manager or designee we're proposing. Um, I have received feedback um, thus far to consider how much specificity we need to ensure the community members understand where the delegation of authority may go. Um, but it is it is our intent to always ensure that the manager is informed and has the ability to make the decision or to delegate the decision for each pricing change. The frequency of adjustments is no more than quarterly, and this is both to assist community members with some certainty that the pricing is predictable, but also because staff will need time to analyze the data and will need time to make a recommendation and push those recommendations through the technology to our meters. Um, thresholds for adjustment. We are proposing that rates be able to be increased in response to high demand and decreased in response to low demand. So we are not proposing a specific um, point performance point at which that has to be codified at which at which we make changes in part because because our our goal is a customer experience as well as performance uh let me see measurable performance we're trying to measure customer experience and if it turns out that the things that we think affect customer experience are not the exact right places of performance we need the ability to adjust those um, time limits we would like the duration of stay in each space to be able to be changed um, and to be decoupled from the meter rate. So today the rate is not decoupled from the time limit. And um, we don't anticipate because time limits are encoded on signs to do any blanket changes to time limits, if that makes sense across the whole project area. Rather, we will be looking at the ways duration of stay and occupancy information relate to the time limits that are currently on the signs. And if there are serious um, conflicts, it's something that we would be able to remedy um, if we are given the permission. Um, complexity of rates. We anticipate rates may differ throughout the day um, and throughout the week. We also anticipate that the days and times of metering may be adjusted. For instance, if it makes sense for performance reasons to lengthen meter hours in certain neighborhoods at, for certain days of the week because of the level of activity happening later in the evening, it's something we would like the ability to consider and to propose. The geographic distribution of rates, um, the rate structure may vary geographically. And this is something that's not true today, but it's something that is pretty obviously a part of the design of this project. Um, we are also proposing to retain what we call an escalating rate option, and this is where you allow a parking stay to cost a different amount in the first hour that you are parked from the second hour and from the third hour. And an escalating rate structure is particularly appropriate for incentivizing turnover. Um, so there may be some neighborhoods and some times of the day or week in which a structure of that sort would be effective. Now, it's not as easy to message 
and it's not necessarily appropriate everywhere all the time. But we did want to keep it on the table, which is why it's in the proposal. Um, increments of adjustment. Staff anticipate that we're going to start with a $1 upward increment at the beginning of this process. However, we want to make sure it's open to increments of adjustment that might be smaller or larger than $1 um, based on the, the seeming price sensitivity that we get from each um, quarterly effort. And lastly, we propose that the maximum rate could not exceed $7 per hour without board action. $7 per hour represents four times the current meter rate, um, but it also represents the maximum point you could reach if you incrementally adjusted upward a parking space $1 each time over the course of seven quarters. We don't see that actually happening. So I just wanna give some framework around that. Um, it, it falls within the reasonable structure that has been uh, that has been implemented by other communities testing a variable rate structure like this and a performance based structure. But um, but staff do not anticipate that it's going to get to that point. We just want to make sure that we don't arbitrarily limit the our ability to raise rates in different areas. Um, all right. um, outreach coming up. This fall and winter, we have a recorded presentation that goes into a bit more detail than this one does coming very soon, and we will be pushing that out on all of our channels. We have an open house December 6th, which will cover a lot more of our data and data visualization and analysis approaches so folks can really hopefully dig in and see some examples of what's going on in neighborhoods and think more about how it relates to their understanding of the curb, um, but also a lot of information about our outreach and about the ordinance changes that we're proposing. We really want to give people a chance to come and talk to us. Um, I also wanted to highlight that the the um, the VDOT system optimization effort to ask us whether we're happy or not with our parking, we expect that to, to roll out very soon, like within the next few weeks. Um, and so again, they're intentionally collecting data before the pricing changes occur so that they have a baseline of parking experience to weigh against um, after pricing changes start. And finally, um, we are designing small group conversations with retail employees um, planned for early 2024. So this would begin probably shortly after we begin pricing changes, but with the goal of really getting partnerships to get um, real conversations with retail employees about where they park, um, excuse me, why they park where they do, what kinds of impacts the changes we're proposing could have on their decisions and um, and things that we can factor in potentially related to <clears throat> mitigating negative impacts on their experience. For instance, retail employees today may be feeding a meter that's a two-hour parking space, but they have to stay there for eight hours because they don't have a good longer-term parking option near where they work. Um, so we can be looking at both price as well as duration of stay and time limits to really think about how we can best mitigate the impacts of performance parking on retail employees. Um, and that's the conclusion of my my formal slides. I'm happy to answer questions, excited to enter this next phase of the project, and quite interested in your feedback and thoughts about the ordinance or any other aspect of the project today. Well, we're excited to have had you here because, you know, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so does Commissioner Bagley, but I'm going to go first. I'm going to go first. <laughs> I have a number of questions. This is very intriguing to me. <laughs> 
Um, all right, a couple of things. Positioning of metered spaces. How did we determine where these 4,200 feet, this probably I should have asked the last time, but I just kind of want to <laughs> figure this out. Like this why time. we chose the ones that are in the yeah. project? Yeah. It's strictly um, the idea that we selected the um, the Metro Rail corridors. Okay. So that project map, and I'll zoom back. Boop, boop, boop. There we are. Um, you probably sort of recognize the blue yeah. shapes because those are planning areas for yeah. neighborhood planning purposes. And it's really all of the metered spaces that are not on BDOT right of way, which we did exclude from the project, but that are within those areas that are not under construction or otherwise um, disabled as metered parking. So we, we did pick the Metro Rail corridors. Yeah. We did not include Columbia Pike. We did not include Sherlington. So it was really, I think, just for lack of a better word, focusing on corridors where we knew there were alternative modes of transportation and a lot of different things going on that we could bring to play when we're changing price. Because then I think about Langston Boulevard and when we think about parking and parking needs mm -hmm. along the corridor. Um, and the other thing I think about also is there's lots of conversations where we're thinking about what's going on with schools and, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how many of these spaces could have could have been well, I mean, I know you're constricted by your grant, but mm -hmm. the where we are thinking about the use of parking around schools, I think, is an important um, under like the data there would be very, very helpful, I think, community wide. Yeah. Um, one other thing is, you know, when we're thinking about these parking changes, I, I saw that you were thinking about the or one possibility would be like 11 to 2, right? It's lunchtime. Maybe the, mm. it goes up in a certain space. So I thought the Crystal City numbers were interesting, the mm. data coming from Crystal City. Um, are we then using the parking meters and the or Park Mobile or whatever it is? Um, because let's say at 10 o'clock it was $1.50 and now at 11 o'clock it's two fifty. So people would know you know, during that time frame and these machines would be able to adjust it for people who are going to be parking? Yes. Okay. So essentially what we will do for each, um, if you can imagine quarterly, there's a price map mm -hmm. that's both temporal and geographic that gets pushed out each quarter. And that map um, is communicated through our meter vendors. So we have three meter vendors. Park Mobile is one of them. Calais Flowbird is the multimeter that you see on the street, and IPS uh, is our single space meter. Each of those vendors has their own thing that they need to push the price structure. And so we're actually working with them now to do whatever pre-work we need to keep that as streamlined as possible, because essentially each time we make a change proposal, whether it's for the whole day period or for a portion of the day, they have a little program they implement. So what the customer experiences is one, those um, public displays that I share, the app slash mobile sites, those will always be real time and true. So they will have the occupancy availability and they will have the price that's actually there on that day at that time. When you go physically to the space and you look at the multimeter, it has the price, the price that we've pushed to it. If you look on Park Mobile, it will show the price. So for instance would be, if you are parking in a location where the price changes, goes from one rate during a low period to a higher rate, and you were proposing to stay there over that period, the total price that Park Mobile would show you for that amount of time is the cumulative total price of the low rate plus the high rate. Mm -hmm. So it will be able to digest that information and to give it back to you so you know the full value of what you're, what you're buying. 
And then, you know, you, you were talking about $1 increments. That's a lot, right? Like that's, I think both Ms. Commissioner Bagley and I were like, Ooh. And then when you said, theoretically, we could be thinking about $7 altogether, even though you don't think we'll get there. A dollar is a lot. And I, that raises this kind of concern. I'm going to say this, but I know these are not hot parking spots. Right? We're not hot laning parking spots. But um, as we start looking at how much money some of these time frames could be, it raises concern for me around um, access, I guess. You know, if we think the earlier slides when you're um, using some of the qualitative data for people, what they're looking for in terms of parking mm -hmm. experience, um, I think that, you know, sometimes those parking, we all want a close spot, right? I mean, Everybody wants to have the ease and the time, you know, the reduce the time from getting from one place to another. But sometimes it's also a necessity thing. And I worry about people who may need it, uh, may not have the most resources for it during specific times. And that's what makes me just slightly nervous about not being able to balance this because some people like to use the hot lanes even when they're $40 one direction. Mm -hmm. I am not one of those people that likes to use them. You know, I like it when it's like a dollar <laughs> or less, right? Like, what about um, people who cannot afford parking at $3 an hour or $4 an hour in a particular space, but they need that particular space? So this project is premised on the fact that there are trade-offs so that a particular space, no one needs a particular space. One needs to get access to a business perhaps, and distance is a factor as is price. So I mentioned um, we are doing a, we are doing particular analysis on the accessible spaces because those have been designated by the county with special permissions so that people who have disabilities and have all of the placard slash um, identification of such are not, um, uh, disserviced mm -hmm. by not being thought of separately as having a separate set of requirements really for access. However, your typical parking spaces, what we want them, even today, what we want them to be doing is providing the, the right amount of access for the right types of purpose. And so, for instance, the short, shorter term two-hour meters are for shorter periods of time. Um, a four-hour meter is for a longer period of time. Price is one of the things that changes turnover and helps people decide how long they're going to stay in a spot. So the um, this project won't blanket change everything to an expensive spot. It will change some of the highest demand locations where if you look for it today, you can't even find it to a place where some of the folks who used to park there now actually see a lower cost spot over here. They choose to go there and you who may be slightly less price sensitive but are very location sensitive today, like let's say you're running late for an appointment, you choose to pay the extra dollar because you know you can see there's availability there and it's in part possible because the price has changed. Whereas if we don't raise the price at all, we don't influence the fact that there's no accessibility for you at all today in those locations. I just worry about the fact that we're not going to be influencing some people and we are highly influencing others. And that is because of financial resources that an individual has. Essentially, what you're saying to somebody who has infinite amount of resources or maybe not even, but they're living very, very comfortably, mm -hmm. you can always park at the most accessible space at the highest demand time. And the person who 
maybe living in one of our 60% AMI affordable on-site, very few affordable on-site spaces in Arlington County may not be able to have that same kind of access, either parking period or parking for the amount of time that somebody who has a lot more resources can utilize that same opportunity. So you're right. Mm -hmm. It's not a need for anybody to park anywhere, but now we're providing access to people and we're we're providing access in a way that it doesn't doesn't necessarily seem fair to me. Um, anyways, I, I know Commissioner Berkey has something, and then I, I skipped Commissioner Lintomi's transportation. Yeah, okay, I skipped over Commissioner Lint because this was so exciting to me. <laughs> this was heard as an informational item last Thursday before the Transportation Commission, um, and it was we had a similar discussion. Um, a lot of a lot of technical questions um, as you were able to answer um, it overall I think the commissioners who were there and commented were overall supportive of doing this were all very indicated were very very interested in seeing what the data because this is a pilot and what that data will reveal after whatever period of time is while we're studying to see what works what doesn't does it in fact influence things point I want to make make really clear as Commissioner Patel has been saying this the the rates are not going to be changing dynamically it isn't going to be that all of a sudden when that block is full the price then goes up by three more dollars that day or that hour this is not that type of program this is a more simple program where as you said was it every three months it gets reviewed and then the prices will change and they will then be locked in for the next three three months. Yep. So it is not something that's going to be changing constantly. It will change every three months. It will be different in different blocks and during different hours, which will be revealed, of course, but it will not be changing day to day, hour to hour, the way our hotlines do. No, I, I know that. but the, No, the, I know you knew that. Yeah. You said that. I yeah. just want to make clear to everybody else yeah. how this is going to work. I just worry that even in those three-month periods, we have, mm-hmm. you know, um, Wealth in this county. Absolutely. Is, and you're right to yeah. raise that. The question is, as as staff mentioned, this is trade-offs. And the trade-off right now is that same person who right now, who is of limited means, is nonetheless spending gas and time driving around and around and around and around until a space finally opens up. That person, that and that has a cost too, in gasoline and their time. Whereas if this works the way we hope, that same person of limited means will either be able to know right away they can park two blocks further over and walk over, or they know if they spend the extra dollar, they could park right away. Even though they're of limited means, there is a an amelioration that they still have options that they may not have now because the space simply isn't there. Um, and as staff mentioned, talking to the about the retail uh, employees. That's going to be a big thing that we're all going to be interested in seeing how that works out. Because right now, a lot of our spaces are taken up by the people who work in the restaurants rather than the customers. So it's, it's a very interesting program. It, As I said, Transportation Commission was very supportive of the whole concept. We want to see how it works or what doesn't work, um, yeah. but very much wants it to go forward. So Yeah, I, I would agree just, with Transportation uh, Commission being supportive of the concept. I just worry that in in when it's operationalized or when we are implementing it and we're thinking about three-month data, 
um, and who's utilizing it. I just worry that when we think about who are, who's benefiting and who's burden, we are exacerbating harm here for the people who are most burdened. Commissioner Bagley. Can, can you pull up the slide again um, that talks about what this is not? In other words, that's the one. Anyway, right. Just from an observation point of view, when we start talking that possibly $7 an hour is on the table or something, somebody's going to look at that number one and go like, you're kidding me, right? I mean, just, just just an observation. Um, you know, most people, I think, whether it's sunny or if it's snowing, are looking for the path of least resistance. So they're going to try to get there as fast as possible or whatever. So I guess my question is, as you showed us the pictures of the red zones and the light blue zones three or four blocks away, is the intent to, by raising the price in a certain area, encourage people through price to go to some of the other places? Because that's the sense I'm getting. Is that Yes, Correct. the combination okay. of the price and the information about location and availability and price okay. is the goal would be to see that people now, instead of um, heading to a location and not knowing where parking is available, will both know where it's available and what the relative cost is. So they can choose a slightly more distant, lower priced option because they can have certainty that they'll just go and they'll park easily and they know what to expect. Okay. Well, for somebody who lives extremely close to the RV corridor, walking mm -hmm. distance to Metro, mm -hmm. um, my concern is now, when I leave here tonight, I will not be parking next to my house. I will be parking in, thankfully, one of the little metered spaces up the street. And fortunately, there's enough street activity. I don't feel unsafe walking home. Mm -hmm. But there are nights I come home at five or six, I have to use the meters and I don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm the only one that pays. Mm -hmm. So I will say that there's an enforcement issue that as I'm looking at all this, I'm going like, unless you're going to be hiring a whole lot more people or unless you've got a weight sensor on a space, how do you really know? Um, because there's not enough parking people now. Right. I will also say that from a neighborhood impact, just what I see all the time anyway in my own neighborhood is people park there because it's nice and close by. And despite the signs that say you're not supposed to park there unless you got a permit between 8 and 1 a.m., mm -hmm. um, they're still there. And there's not enough people to come in after my neighbors. I don't even call my neighbors call enough that they come every so often and ticket. But um, and, and one other thing I would like to point out this when we had the whole RPP. Drawn out thing years ago, there was a public open house that took place in December and the attendance was very small. December is a rough time to have a public open house, especially at night. There's holiday parties going on. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. So. Just saying it's probably not the ideal time to try to draw people. I was one of the few people that went to that only because, again, I don't have a place when I go home to park. So, yeah, thank you. Um, I have a couple um, observations to just respond to some of your comments. Well, one with enforcement, I did want to point out that because we will have data about um, we're calling it compliance. So we have meter data, which tells us how much people are paying to park, how often, like what the total volume is of payment. And then now for the first time, we will have occupancy and we can compare transactions against occupancy to see what the relative compliance in payment is for any given space or neighborhood or area. 
And our intent is actually to be able to feed to the police, the limited police enforcement team that does the parking enforcement information about compliance by area that can help them target enforcement. So it won't be the same as ensuring that, you know, a little siren goes off and someone will come out and automatically ticket. I think we have um, we have limited means of doing automatic ticketing in the county that would let us really implement that sort of thing. But rather, we can tell them these are the five hotspots this quarter. This is what the data says. This is where you should target enforcement because it's the least amount of payment for occupancy that's happening in this area. And then they can actually hopefully more efficiently allocate their limited resources. So that is an area where the project gives us an opportunity for the first time that we haven't really had before to assist with that. Um, and on neighborhood impact, um, I hear you about the concern. Um, there are going to be neighborhoods in the project that have tighter edges, I would say, like less ability to push people from a high demand parking area to a quote unquote lower demand metered space. So we are we are looking at how we can observe those potential effects. Um, we are hopeful that um, that the data we have on residential permit parking areas and their relative occupancy during their regulated hours is such that um, those streets do tend to be like the regulations are effective, I guess is what I would say, compared to an un unregulated residential street. So there is um, a measurable difference in the occupancy, which suggests that while they're not perfect, the signs do help, but we recognize that we are changing a factor now on how people use metered spaces and how they weigh their choices. So we are looking at how we can observe that during the course of the project. And I would just say that um, that's great what you just said, if it's an area where Metro isn't a block and a half away, but I'm thinking my own street and really throughout Boston, north of Fairfax, all of those streets are heavily parked and they do have RPP. Um, and, you know, there's a big parking garage at Boston, not used, mm -hmm. not the least, you know, the path mm -hmm. of least resistance. So this will be for the neighbors. This will be a good one to watch. Thank you. I skipped over Commissioner Berkey, but then Commissioner Weir and then Commissioner Peterson. I'll try to make this quick. Um, Melissa, I just want to compliment you. This is, I wasn't here in April. I was not on the Planning Commission then. <laughs> um, this is not the easiest thing to wrap your, your arms around. Uh, there's a lot of factors, so I really appreciate that. You were talking about success earlier, so you mentioned customer experience is a big part of that. What, I'm, what I've heard during the discussion is it's really like this kind of predictability aspect, right? Would that be fair to say? Yes. It's sort of like the goal here. But what I really um what I really appreciate about this pilot um is when we we think about planning, I think sometimes there's a tendency to think like planning and we're gonna have this great vision of what whatever the thing is going to be and then it's going to be. And what I really appreciate about this is it's a pilot and we sort of don't exactly know where we're going to land. And I think it really provides us an opportunity um, with a, a limited issue, which is availability of parking, to kind of just see what happens and to kind of continue to iterate. Um, so this is kind of the type of project where I think it's, I don't say it's great, but I, I think it's, a, I think this is the type of thing we should be doing more of is just trying to figure out 
kind of what's going to uh, be the impact of certain actions. I certainly appreciate what the chair was was remarking about with regards to some of the folks who might be impacted more by the cost increases. And I, I definitely appreciate you thinking about, you know, the, the retail workers or the, the folks who are working a lot of those establishments nearby. Um, they'll, they'll be impacted, but it's sort of not exactly the issue you're chasing after. It's sort of an adjacent issue that is nevertheless um, important. So I appreciate you speaking to that and thinking about, you know, is there a way that we can maybe support those folks? It's not necessarily squarely within this. Um, but they are, are going to be impacted. So that's really a, a long comment, but I, I do appreciate the work you're doing and um, we'll be interested like my uh, colleagues to see what the data says. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Weir. Uh, a question and a comment. Um, the question with respect to the uh, API for third party uh, use, have you been in conversation with any of the the sort of the usual suspects who are or have uh, a, a history of developing um, uh, web interfaces or dashboards for transportation planning. I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular, and the name escapes me. Uh, but it was it was very common to see it in dashboard displays at at buildings like um, the the Berkeley or or any sort of large new building. They were they were using it, and it was sort of a publicly available tool. Um, but it, uh, I, 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 I guess that's the end of my question. I'm curious to know whether or not you're actually in conversation with developers about what their needs are for the for the API. Um, and then I have a comment after you've answered for my colleagues. Um, thank you for that question. So, um, hmm. the short answer is we haven't engaged in detail in the conversations with with those external parties yet. I think the particular one that you're thinking of is probably transit screen or um, affiliated because those are the ones that we've seen a lot of that show um, real time GTFS and other similar feeds of available sources. Um, that said, we are because Park Mobile is one of our vendors, they expressed early interest because they're already providing that they're providing the means for us to pay for metered parking and they know that they have an interface that could share our data. So um, we are working on ensuring that the API is broadly digestible um, and we will be um, while our focus in this first phase has actually mostly been our public and increasing awareness of the project and talking about those priorities. This next phase will include a lot of engagement with the vendors to make sure that such an API is, is really effective and useful for them. And we use it too. It's actually an API that we are also trying Great. to digest. Great, thank you. And then for my colleagues, I just want to lean in a little bit on a point that Commissioner Lentelmi made um, uh, uh, in response, um, Madam Chair, to you and, and some of the concerns that you raised. Um, you know, there is a uh, this data-driven phenomenon that at any given point, especially during rush hour and the evening rush, that up to a third of the vehicles on the road at any given time are circling looking for parking. And I think that it's more of an issue than just the economic inconvenience of the person who's driving looking around for the parking spot to consider. We learned um, from a couple of peer-reviewed articles just in the last three months that the number one source of microplastics in the environment is uh, is is car tire dust. Um, uh, so, you know, even if we were to have this gloriously successful EV transition that we're told is going to save the car industry, I mean, excuse me, save the environment, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're still in a situation where we don't get away from ruinous uh, public health and environmental consequences 
um, uh, uh, so long as there are situations where a third of the vehicles on the road are doing nothing but circling, looking for parking. And the county is small enough that that's not localized to the RB corridor. You know, a, a situation like that where you are just filling the environment with particulates, you know, those particulates don't stay in Clarendon. They don't stay in Boston. They don't stay in Virginia Square. They migrate up to Halls Hill. You know, they don't stay along Columbia Pike. They migrate down to Green Valley. Um, they especially migrate down to Green Valley because it's downwind and downhill. Uh, um, so, you know, there there are serious, I think, equity issues that strongly suggest that we do have an obligation to do what we can to to limit to try to make sure that, you know, 20% of the parking spaces on the road are available at all times. Uh, I don't know which way it goes, but I, I do know that we don't, we don't get to wash our hands just by not charging, uh, uh, by not managing the parking supply. Thank you. I just, um, before you, I, I want to, I understand this point that both Commissioner Lentami and Commissioner Weir have said about this circling the block notion. Um, but right now under this particular study, what we're saying is that people don't know where the parking is. And so theoretically, everybody's circling the block, right? Not just the people that can't afford parking, everybody's circling the block, right? And so what we are also saying is that potentially, depending on the cost of parking, you, person who can afford it, now has better access and no longer has to circle as many times as you previously did. But the person who cannot afford it, it's just an, again, it's an access and it's an equity issue. And I think, yes, I, I agree with Commissioner Berkey saying um, the intent of this, of this grant and this project is very clear. It's a, you know, it's about practicality. It's about availability. It's about making sure people understand where parking is available. But I think this issue of equity is not tangential. It's not a collateral aspect of this. It It is part and parcel of the work that we're doing, of, the, of what we should be thinking about when we think about access. Commissioner Peterson? Um, was there any responses from staff to Commissioner Weir's questions? I'm happy to just go ahead. Um, I don't think, I think I responded to the question and I just noted the comment. Okay, yep. great. Thank you. Um, so I had a couple questions. Um, the first was related to what Commissioner um, Chair Patel was talking about with the equity issue. You had mentioned that um, somebody could maybe drive nearby and get a better, a more affordable rate. So how far are they going to have to drive? What, what are we looking at, like from one street to another? Um, I'm thinking specifically about my child's pediatrician is in an area that seems like it's always more than 80% parked. So let's say a parent is taking their sick child to the pediatrician, gets there, parks, finds out it's, you know, $7 an hour to park, decides that's not going to work for them. How far are they going to have to drive to get like a $4 an hour parking spot? <laughs> um, well, we don't know in the sense that we don't have the maps yet and them and they are going to evolve so each quarter when we look at a, at the price changes we're specifically looking at um both the actual performance of the highest the highest uh, occupancy blocks but also 
where are the blocks with lower occupancy and how feasible are they as trade-off locations? Because mm -hmm. today, again, no one has the information about where parking is available. So we, I would acknowledge that we could change just that, the availability of information about where parking is available, and that could change behavior by itself. What we're going to do is change two things at once. We're going to change price and information about availability, and we're going to see how much we have to change those things. So for instance, if we raise the price in an area, we may lower a price in a nearby area so that we increase the sort of um, the, the draw. But we're not going to, to imagine that a space that's in Clarendon is a replacement for a space in Roslyn. It's really trying to be practical at the geography level of what is a, a what is a reasonable replacement option. And that is where accessible spaces have to be treated differently. But we envision that the typical um, the typical metered space where it kind of doesn't assume special treatment for the different types of parkers, um, there there may be a willingness to walk a couple blocks, knowing that the difference is instead of being in your car searching, which is where we get a lot of the negative externalities. So you've got your sick kid in the car, right? And you're already frazzled and you're behind the drivers, behind the wheel. And maybe your child is like coughing and you're trying really hard. Vomiting. Not to look. <laughs> yeah. And vomiting. And you're trying hard not to look and freak out. I've been there too. Um, you want that person to have certainty that they can find a spot. And sometimes they are willing to pay more or sometimes they're like, okay, I have certainty and I want to pay less. So I'm going to go two blocks this way to park, but no, I can park and then spend that time getting into the doctor's office. Whereas alternatively, we don't have as much certainty or the choice. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the kind of, we're trying to increase choice in the time when it is the most impactful for the safety of the streetscape for the safety of pedestrians, for the safety of bicycles and car drivers and their passengers. Mm -hmm. And so we really think that we get that benefit by increasing the predictability and the planning nature of the choice. Okay. And then, so if you can walk me through, you know, I drive to the kid's doctor's office, there are no parking spots here. So then I just like pull over on the road somewhere and pull out my app and find the nearest parking spot or while I'm driving, I would never do this. I'm pulling up the app and okay, let's see, where's the spot? So I guess I'm trying to think through like, how is this actually, how is somebody going to find the spot that's more affordable or just there if they need a spot? So um, a couple options. One is that you can pull it up before you get into the car or before you pull out of your driveway at home. So you can be like, OK, I know where the doctor's office is. You plug in that address. It zooms in. You can immediately see. And depending on you know, how much time it takes you, you can see the areas where there's several spaces and you know it's not going to fill up versus, oh, if I drove up this way, which is right in front of like the doorway, there's only one space available. By the time I get there, it might not be there. But you know that if you choose to make a turn right before then, you have more options available. So I would suggest that most people use it, whether in an emergency, as your scenario states, or you're planning for your dinner out with your friends, you use it as a planning tool. And you can see it because it's real time. And it also has predictive capability because it will accumulate data and you'll be able to get a sense of what seven o'clock on a Friday evening on the street in Clarendon looks like you can make planning decisions. So, so it's going to pr predict. Yes, conditions that is my understanding it. of the, the way the app will be able to aggregate data, because as soon as we have historic data, it will be able to say this is what 7 p.m. on Fridays looks like in that neighborhood on that on that stretch of block. So 
that's as a planning tool, but also the um, demo that I mentioned of the real-time signs is intended to be another safer way for a driver to actually see some options as they approach a neighborhood. So that's more, I would say more on the, from the sense of you're not a resident, you don't know it very well, but you're coming in to meet your friends. And now with any, without any other exposure to these cool tools, you can see the lot is this price. It has this many spaces. This street over here, this but this price has this many spaces. If you go up two more blocks, this price has this many spaces. Okay. Uh, and my final question um, was just about the time limits. Um, right now, most parking time limits are printed on signs. And so kind of when you're pulling up to a place, okay, I know I need to be here for three hours. I drive by a sign. No, that one's only two hours. Okay, this one, I found it. I park. And then now I'm going to have to look in an app and find out that, no, wait, I, this is only a two-hour spot because it's high demand. Now I need to move and park in a new spot. I think that's, and are we, or are we going to like repaint all the county's signs every quarter when we hmm. maybe make some of these changes based on demand? Um, so that was my question. And I also just wanted to say, I agree with Commissioner Berkey that it's really nice to see you doing these pilot projects and trying new things. And I'm really excited to see the data. Um, and, and so thank you for the work. Yeah. Awesome. And so to your last question, well, one, I want to say good question about what, what will you be able to see by way of time limits in your in the available data? Because I don't know the answer to that and I can find that out. Um, are we going to change them as a blanket through every quarter? No. What, what we imagine being able to do is as we learn through duration of stay analysis, where there are major discrepancies between what's signed and what is actually happening, we can make some strategic decisions around changing the duration of stay to assist with people really right-sizing the regulation to the nature of the businesses that are operating around there. Um, but I will I will look into whether it is possible for us to also be displaying the time limit. Now, I, I seem to recall that one of the two apps already does that, but I don't know for sure. So I can look into that. Okay, Commissioner Sarah. I have a couple questions. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, so the first question I have is, um, we're doing 4,500 um, approximately parking spots. What's the what's the percentage of that relative to sort of metered parking spots in Arlington County? Do you know? Most. So so this. I don't have it off the top of my head, but it is most of our metered parking. So like two thirds to like you know three quarters. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was my question. And I think these are probably sort of also the most used and most in demand. Right. So we can trickle down and, and I'm just thinking sort of, you know, whatever the outcome of the study is, we can trickle this out to the rest of the county and even project on things like Langston Boulevard. That's going to, you know, we expect a little bit more parking. And then you mentioned Columbia Pike. And I was slightly curious about that, but I, I won't ask anything about that. And then. Um, I will not resist making a comment. <laughs> I, I will associate myself with Commissioner Berkey's comment about the the positive, you know, um, aspect of this study and pilots. And I think it's great that we're doing pilots, you know, and taking some risks and learning some things. I definitely encourage staff to do that. Uh, and it's good to see it. I will say, again, sort of zooming out a little bit beyond the parking and, and just looking at transportation as a whole, you know, and, and maybe I spend too much time reading about Dutch towns and their sort of 
transportation patterns, you know, where parking just doesn't seem to be a problem over there because everybody either takes public transportation or they bike, you know. So I think um, as we talk about these accessibility issues, which I think is particularly good, right? So I, I, I do feel uh, the chair's uh, sentiment and I agree with it. Um, but I think as a community, we really need to focus on transitioning away from vehicles, right, and really move towards public transportation, bicycles, mobile, whatever else we can come up with and really commit to that in a way that makes this parking conversation almost besides the point. And I also uh, concur with Commissioner Weir's concern that EVs are very attractive right now, but you're right, they're not you know, really solving anything. Uh, at the end of the day, we still have quite a bit of, uh, they're an improvement, I should say, but they're not um, the end result. Um, with that, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your wonderful presentation. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate it. I appreciate all your input. So we will see you soon then. Thank you. Take care. Okay. We're done with all of our agenda items except for PC business. Yes. Okay, do we have any rosters? <laughs> Thank God you're here. <laughs> okay. Hello, colleagues. Um, we have three rosters to approve tonight for um, SPRC projects, and then um, Commissioner Lentelmi will do a roster for LRPC. So I'll start. Um, we have one new project. So, colleagues, you recently received the proposed SPRC subgroup roster for the Goodwill site. Madam Chair, I ask for your unanimous consent in approving these rosters, that roster. Seeing no objection, the roster is approved. Okay, um, and now we have two to amend. Um, Commissioner, I'll tell me, I'll just do Riverhouse now by unanimous consent. So colleagues, you recently received the proposed SPRC subgroup roster amendments for Red Lion Inn and Riverhouse. Um, Madam Chair, I ask for your unanimous consent to amend the previously adopted rosters. Since there is no objection, the uh, roster is adopted. Okay, thank you. And I just wanted to thank Commissioner Steinberger for taking on a new SPRC project recently. So thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Tommy. Yes, we have rosters for two LRPCs coming up. One is for the Pentagon City PDSP, um, and the second one is, remind me, Mr. Pfeiffer, the River House. That's right, River House. That's two of them that will be happening this month. Um, uh, they were circulated around earlier by um, uh, Ms. Johnson, and I ask unanimous consent to accept those two LRPC rosters. Seeing no objection, they adopt, the rosters are adopted. Thank you. Okay. Commissioner um, Lund, tell me. Yes. Um, excuse me. Sorry. Uh, I believe there was one sent for the Melwood Special Glove Study as well. That's right. Yes. That one came around earlier this afternoon. So I asked for one more that's Melwood. Um, so we actually have three this month, believe it or not, folks. Um, so we asked for unanimous consent for the um, Melwood LRPC that was sent around earlier today. Okay. Seeing no question, the, the roster is adopted. Um, okay, so I seek unanimous consent for adoption of the minutes for October, the October 4th Planning Commission meeting. Saying no objection, that these minutes are adopted. And finally, um, I seek unanimous consent um, for adoption of the October 2nd um, minutes as well. Saying no objection, that those minutes are adopted as well. Mr. Pfeiffer, can you just note the record for October 4th that I abstained or that I didn't participate in that? 
Thank you very much. Um, we'll see everybody on November 1. All right. Playing commissions in recess. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.